bit closer to the microphone. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. How's that? Is that That's better great. for you? That's great. That is good. wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And right. whenever great. you guys are ready. We didn't need much of a mic check, really, for Salman Rushdie. He was ready to go the moment he sat in the chair in front of the microphone. He's been talking about his books for more than 30 years. But in this conversation, we go deep into his creativity, deep into his past about how place has shaped the worlds he has invented in his writing and about what he drew inspiration from as a kid. The first story he remembers writing, he wrote it after watching a movie that was made in 1939. Salman Rushdie's new book is Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. From WLRN Public Media in Miami, this is Spark, a podcast about imagination. Most great cities have majorities of people who were not born there. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, New York City is a colossal majority mm -hmm. of people from somewhere else, and it's not even foreigners. You know, I mean, I, I I sometimes think that a move from like from a small Midwestern town to Manhattan is actually a bigger journey than the journey from, say, Bombay mm -hmm. to Manhattan. Because mm -hmm. if you if you know what it is to be an urban person, if you know what it is to live in a city, then I think you can adapt relatively easily to another city. But if you come from a remote place and you've lived in a tiny community and, and suddenly there's 10 million people around you, I think that's more shocking. Imagine if you didn't live in New York City. Yeah. Do you think your work would reflect the, the uh, different place? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, but I think, you know, my life, I've lived in three giant cities. Mm -hmm. I lived in Bombay first, and then in London, and then for the last, it's actually getting on for 16 years in, in New York. So I see my writing as being very shaped by urban experience. You know, I see myself as a, as a big city writer. You know, I mean, if I look at people like, uh, like Faulkner, Mm -hmm. or, or Eudora Welty, mm -hmm. or Flannery O'Connor. I mean, I'm very attracted to the literature of the American South. And one of the reasons is that the world they're describing is so not mine, you know? So it's a way for me to enter this world of the small town, a small community, you know? Uh, but I think that what happens in my books is these stories crowd in, you know? And in this book, there's a really quite, there's really too many stories in it. And the, the main story, kind of has to push its way through the crowd. Mm -hmm. And and I thought that's a good way of representing city life. C yeah. A city is a place where there's stories everywhere. Stories colliding with you in the on the sidewalk, ha strap hanging next to you on the subway. This urban experience began your childhood in uh, yeah. what was known as Bombay. Today and for many of us, still Bombay. Still Bombay. You stick to that, uh, to that name. Yeah, I mean, I think Mumbai is one of those... Uh, fake names. It's, Mumbai is like Ho Chi Minh City, which everybody still calls Saigon. <laughs> so right. uh, so uh, I, I mean, there's too long an explanation to give you about why it's a fake name, but, but a lot of people still call it Bombay. Bo your, uh, Bombay is less of a, a manufactured name than Yeah, Mumbai. I mean, the thing is that Bombay is not like some of the, some of the cities in India are very ancient cities. Mm -hmm. Bombay is actually not an ancient city. It's a city that the British built in India. That they acquired it. The they, it was just a bunch of islands, seven islands on the with a beautiful natural harbor, and the British joined the islands through a big act of land reclamation, uh, and made it into a sort of peninsula, and then built first a fort and then a city. So it's a relatively new place. Before the British colonized it, it had been first colonized by the Portuguese, mm -hmm. and the Portuguese called it Bombaia, which means a beautiful bay. And so Bombay is actually an anglicization of that. And Mumbai is 
something else again. In in uh, in it's a twenty late twentieth century, twenty first century manufactured name for the city of your youth. Yeah. So much of your work has threads in contemporary yeah. culture, yeah. pop culture, uh, and contemporary news. Yeah, items. no, I mean, I think you know, I mean, if you think about Dickens. He really lived in the city, and he knew every inch of it, and he uh, and he he penetrated every kind of milieu, from the slums to the aristocrats. You know, oops. <laughs> uh, and uh, Salman Rushdie talks a lot with his hands and hits yeah, microphones. Yeah. yeah. And I think you know, that's sort of what you should do. You should get into as many different kinds of room as you can, so that you can write about it. You know, I mean, how are you going to p- portray? Uh, what you know, a kind of Wall Street tycoon. How do you draw upon that while uh, keeping it grounded in uh, facts enough to make it believable, um, but to insert the magic? You've been mm. you've been uh, you know deemed the master of magic realism, but insert the magic that envelops the reader. Well, I mean, I think it's not so much insert the magic as that the magic should or the, the the kind of surrealism, the kind of the non-naturalistic things should grow out of the real, you know, and, and uh, then they become like a way of creating metaphors, you know, or creating, mm-hmm. creating memorable images um, out of the real. But if they don't have those roots in the real, if they're just spoon, spooned in, you know, shoehorned in, then it doesn't work, you know, it's, it's unattractive. Have there moments when you're? Do you write with a keyboard? Yeah. Are there moments of the keyboard where, though, you're 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 building the magic from the top down and the roots don't? No, not really ever. Not really ever. I mean, uh, because the anything that I'm going to write which has a a surreal element is always a way of talking about something I think about the real world. You know, so that for instance, in in this novel, you have this character of Mr. Geronimo, the gardener. Mm-hmm who one day inexplicably becomes just slightly detached from the earth. So he's like half an inch. Literally detached. Yeah, Yeah. he levitates. Levitates, but just a tiny bit, you know. And of course, half an inch off the ground is just as great a breach of the law of gravity as 20 feet off the ground. And reduces the, uh, uh, the physics of being able to move around to nothing. Makes it very difficult. Yes. You know, um, anyway, the point is that what I was thinking about was the real life thing of people who feel, for whatever reason, sometimes migration, sometimes just moving house, who feel a bit alienated from, they don't feel the ground solid beneath their feet. You know, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of people whose lives are uprooted by whatever upheaval it can be. Uh, it can be persecution. It can just be employment. You Have know, you but, felt that way? Born in India, educated. Yeah, in the I mean, UK, I bounced in New York. Yeah, I mean, I bounced around a lot, you know. So, so for me, that sense of the ground beneath my feet is always a little problematic, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and it means that when I'm writing books, actually, the question of place, setting, becomes very, very important. Uh, until I feel that I've really got the setting right, I can't actually put people in it or, or make them do anything believable. So, this idea of somebody. I suppose it comes a little bit about out of my own situation, but out of also seeing many other people. You know, in a, a city is full of displaced people. You know, New York City colossally full of people sure. from somewhere else. Sure. And how grounded do they feel? 
you know. Um, how connected to the community. How connected, you know. Yeah. And so I thought it's just it was just a way of making a visual image, but also a kind of metaphor out of a real feeling, a real feeling of being disconnected. You had an interesting comment there uh, that you, you thought it, it applied to you, but it applied to others. Is it easier to see those roots in others around you than in yourself? Yeah, yeah. But I also, you know, one of the things that I think just because of the kind of um, wandering life that I've had, it gives me a real sense about how migration, how mass migration, the movements of people around the planet, you know, has become one of the great definitions of our time. You know, and the, the, we're seeing a play out in real time in, seeing, in Europe here as we speak. And now we're seeing a catastrophe version of it. Yeah. But, you know, even without the calamity, this is a an age in which more people have moved than ever before. I mean, partly because there's things like airplanes. What helped plant these seeds that well, grew into the roots, that grew into the, the magic realism that you've got in two years, eight months, and 28 nights? Well, one of the things that's been interesting to me a lot of the people who've been reading this book have been, uh, particularly people from South Asia, you know, have been have been writing to me saying how nostalgic it was because they were remembering the stories about the jinn, the stories about genies and so on that they were told as children, you know, and and I mean, me too. I was told those stories, you know. So I grew up in this particular world of fable and folktale and fairy tales. How so, were those stories told to you? Was this well, a, a initially bedtime? orally, initially yeah. just, you know, my parents telling them as bedtime stories and then and then, you know, there there were there were comic books, mm -hmm. sort of picture books of story of these stories. And then as you got older, you got to read the actual original books. I mean the Arabian Nights is is obviously the most famous of those. Right, the 1001. 1001 Nights. Or uh, 2 years, 8 months and 28 days. Yeah. yeah. I mean I just I at a certain point I thought what is 1001 Nights? What is that in English? You know. <laughs> 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 and, and I worked it out and then I liked it that that the that, that, that there was another kind of shapely number. Yeah. Of two eight twenty eight concealed inside the famous number. Take take me back to that moment where you had that epiphany to translate uh, this time uh, uh, measurement yeah. from a thousand and one yeah. into as you put English time. Yeah, well, because I thought I don't want to write a folkloristic story. You know, I want to write a story about now, and yes, I I want to use the the manner of these old fairy tales and folk tales. But I want to do it now in New York City, right, you know, the day after tomorrow. Um, and so I don't want it to sound like an ancient fairy tale. So it'd be quite wrong to call it the Thousand and One Nights or something. And then I thought, well, we wouldn't call it that now. We would have an actual date, you know, an actual time period. And then I thought, let me work out what that is. Did, did you do it longhand? Yeah, I did it longhand, and I kept because I'm not, you know, not the most brilliant mathematician in the world. Work with I, words, not numbers. I sure. kept, I kept, kept getting it wrong. You know? <laughs> right? Who, who fact checked the title? Did the publisher fact checked. No, the title? Um, though in the end, I started using, you know, machines <laughs> to, to fact check it. I want to uh, take you back. Uh, to the uh, early 1970s, mid-1970s. You first published in 1975, yeah. uh, uh, won the Booker Prize in 1981. Uh, prior to that, though, as you, were, as you were writing, at what point did you uh, recall becoming aware of your imagination? Oh, you know, I mean, I was one... If you believed my parents, which why not, they said that I would as a small child, uh, 
you know, like nine, ten years old, I would say that I wanted to be a writer, and I would, and actually, I wrote a story. I remember going. The Wizard of Oz came to India, the movie, uh, when I would have must have been ten years old, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's nineteen fifty six, fifty seven, somewhere there, uh, and I saw it in India and was very struck by it, and I went home, and wrote a story called Over the Rainbow, which was not anything to do with Oz. It was about a boy like me in a city like Bombay, walking along the sidewalk and who sees not the end of the rainbow, but the beginning of the rainbow, the rainbow arcing away from him up off the sidewalk. What made the beginning of the rainbow different than the end? It had steps that you could climb up. It had no pot of gold, but it had, but it had, it had steps. And so he, the boy in the story starts walking over the rainbow. Then he has adventures, which I forget mercifully. And, and my father, to, and I hand wrote the story. Sure. But, and my father said he'd get his secretary to type it up, so she typed it up, and it was like four pages, five pages, something. But it was my first story. And then he said that he would look after it because he said, if I give it to you, then you'll just lose it. And so he kept it, and then he lost it. <laughs> <laughs> lost to the annals of time now. Yeah, it is. Because, yes. I mean, you know, when he passed away, I mean, he always claimed that it was in a file in his office. Uh, but when he passed away, and we really searched for it. I mean, I really searched for yeah. it, and there's no trace of it. He was a businessman. Yeah. 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 He had, he had, uh, he, his father was very successful in the textile industry, and, mm. and, and my father essentially moved for, out of the textile industry into property, real estate in Bombay, and basically inherited a gigantic amount of money from my grandfather and spent his life losing all of it so that by the time he died, there was nothing left. Yeah, you describe your upbringing as middle class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, we were, we were. I mean, middle class in India is, it doesn't quite mean what it means here. I mean, it's, uh, we were, we were quite, uh, we weren't super rich, but we were really very well. Affluent yeah, is what yeah, you'd call we it were, today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, there's a whole class of the kind of ultra rich in sure. India. And we weren't anywhere near that. But, but, you know, we were better than 99% of the population. But then, my dad died flat broke. Flat broke. Flat broke. Well, if you're going to inherit money, one would argue you can't take it with you. No, I think fine. You know, he he lived his life and, and spent it all. Did that change your relationship with money, with the success well, that you've well, had it in meant your I career? Had, you know, I always had to pay my way. I mean, I had to, you know, I had, I never had, you know, I never was a kind of trust fund kid. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I had to work for a living. Yeah. And I think that's just fine. As it happens, I think that's a really good thing. And and uh, I'd have, you know, I, basically my, you know, my family, as people do, paid for me until I graduated from college. What type of work uh, did you write for the first paycheck? That well, I you worked, were able I, to? I got a job in advertising and I was writing advertising copy. What kind of products? Oh, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I uh, uh, amongst other things, I wrote travel ads to send people for their vacation to the United States. And, and had I, you been to the United States? I at had that time? never been, and, and the United States Travel Service, as it was then called, um, said, "Well, we better send you." So the first time I came to America, it was was on you're on, a madman on the government's dime. Yeah. You know, the American government sent me on a trip around America, and all I had to do was have a vacation, so I could write, go back and write ads about how to have a vacation, good vacation in America. You no longer had to imagine the vacation; no, you had experienced. I had to it go now. and do it. Yeah. So, so you know, I what, what, what was the uh, was there a fissure between the imagine imaginative America and the real well, you America? Know, the, the thing that was really strange 
is that, of course, America is very, very visually familiar to non-Americans because of the movies and TV and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, so so before you ever come to America, you have a lot of pictures of America in your head. You know, um, uh, and you arrive in a city like New York and you recognize everything, but you're lost. You know? so, <laughs> so, it's, so it's a very weird feeling that you're in a place that feels completely familiar, but you don't know your way around. Right. You know? uh, so it's a, it has that kind of dream quality to it. You know, because in dreams, sometimes you find yourself walking a city street and you think, you know, I know this place, but actually you don't know anywhere or where to go. So it had that feeling. I mean, I went, you know, I did, there were two of us who were sent on this trip, and the other writer was quite a kind of nature-loving, outward-bound, hiking kind of guy. Um, so, so he went to, you know, he went to the Rockies and the Great Lakes and the, the you know, all that. I went to the cities. So I went to San Francisco and L.A. and, and Las Vegas and uh, D.C. Mm-hmm. And, and New York. And, you know, and I had the best time of my life. What uh, what did you take from that trip and well, take from your time in advertising and apply it with your imagination to this? To the, well, yeah. what I what I took from it was that I fell in love with New York. That's what happened, mm. you know. And and uh, and I liked everywhere else, but I fell in love with New York. And I thought, just one of these days, I want to just put myself here. Imagine if you mm. didn't live in New York. Yeah, where would you live? In America, I might live on San Francisco. I mean, I think it's the mm. it's the other place in America that I think I could live. Um, and actually, LA is much more beautiful than people let on, you know. And, and if you stay away from Hollywood, it's even better. Um, but no, I think New York it was the place that just caught my imagination, and I thought I just felt this would be a good place for me. And and when I finally was able to do it, sixteen years ago, I. I was right, you know, and it, it's like square peg finds square hole. You know? uh, there's uh, there's a bit of, of um, um, experience informing your reason here, and I want to transition into this idea of the world of reason. You t- yeah. write about it. Uh, it's kind of ever-present in this book, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. Uh, and it's it, it, this battle in your fiction between reason and faith and reason and religion is ever present in much of your fictional work. Yeah, was I it mean, present I, in your household growing up? No, my my I was I was very fortunate to grow up in a kind of godless household. Fortunate to grow up in a godless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was excused God. You know, and I think it's one of the great things my parents did for me was to excuse me religion. Did you have a uh, a faith experience similar to your America experience? Uh, no, I mean we just grew up without it. I mean, all of this I'm talking about my immediate nuclear family, mm-hmm. but my my larger family contained many people who were deeply religious. You know, and my my maternal grandfather, for instance, was, you know, he had performed the pilgrimage to Mecca, and mm. you know, he he prayed five times a day, and you know, he was deeply religious, but he was also very broad-minded and tolerant. So, you know, he was very likable person, and so from him, I got a very likable picture of religion. You know, um, and from some other people in the family, somewhat less likable. Do you respect religion today? Uh, I no. Frankly, you know, I mean, if you, if you, if I had the power of a genie, if I had a wish, you know, to ask a genie, I would make it disappear. Religion. Yes. I would say make it disappear. Imagine a world without religion. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, at the, at the, towards the end of this novel, 
I I do try and do that. Right. You know, I, try, I, I mean, I'd suggest that it may be a thousand years coming. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's showing up the day after tomorrow. But I, what, and one of the places I got that from, which is sort of behind this book, is that if you look at a lot of the world's oldest religious stories, which now we call mythologies, you know, if you, if you look at the the Norse myths or the Greek and Roman myths, which originally, you know, that was the Nordic religion. It mm-hmm. was the Greek and Roman religion. Polytheism, sure. Yeah. Um, once they had temples and priests and so on, you know, now they're just stories. But the interesting thing that they share is this idea that after a certain point, the gods retreat and no longer interfere in human affairs. You know, and then it's just we're left on our own. Uh, and uh, that seemed to me to correspond to a myth of growing up. That, you know, when we're children, we have parents, we have, you know, godlike figures who tell us what to do and teach us things and show us the right path and try and steer us away from the wrong path, etc. And, and uh, we need them, you know. Um, and, and then we reach a point where we feel we don't need them. You know, or, and we probably reach that point slightly before we actually don't need them, you know, but but we but we do reach that point. Um, I mean, I have an eighteen-year-old son, and I think he's very much much at that point. He's probably at that point. You're yes. not quite there yet. <laughs> exactly. Oh, right. Right. Um, but uh, and, and then you know, we, it's just up to us to make our own lives. And I think these ancient mythologies, in a way, create a metaphor of growing up. You know, and and, and I think. That in that sense, that that I'm interested in the the idea that this is a, a mythology about the coming to adulthood, if you like, of the human race, and yeah. as it comes to adulthood, it can put away childish things. As as we look at uh, today's uh, modern world and the role that religion plays, mm. uh, I think it's fair to say, though, that uh, there's a number of places in this world uh, that have. Uh, the faithful asking for God's intervention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, it's a time it, that one could not have foretold. 50, I mean, I went to college just about 50 years ago in, in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that time, the idea that religion would come to reoccupy the center of public life, you know, would have seemed ludicrous. Is it filling a, des- a desire, a need? Uh, I don't know. You know, I think something it's... Something hollow in the human spirit? It's, I think what's happened... That's what the religious texts will say, right? Well, I think what's happened, and it's sort of what, what one of the things this book is about is that the world is changing incredibly fast, incredibly fast, and uh, and not just politically, but technologically, in, in every way. You know, the rate of change is accelerated in a way that it never has been in, in human history. And I think people are, often a lot of people are bewildered by that and, and, and kind of feel uh, alarmed. Levitated. And, yeah, alienated, yeah. you know, alienated. They think, what's going on? You, you feel as if, the rules have changed, you know, that the, 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 the thing that you thought were the rules of the world, suddenly they sort of don't seem to apply anymore. And you don't really understand what the new rules are. So I thought that's really, that's the idea out of which this book came, that if we lived in, how do you dramatize that idea yeah. of a world become strange, and therefore alienating and, and scary? Yeah. yeah. And yes, in that situation, I think a lot of people reach for what feel like eternal truths. You know, like thing that doesn't change, uh, which is faith. You know, which is the, the ideas that that religion teaches. So I think you know, it's like people caught in a flood. You know, reaching for a a log to hold on to. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I think uh, you've reached your log is is reason. 
is human capacity. Yeah, for but reason. it's not only reason; it's also imagination. It's also imagination, which is something which doesn't obey the laws of reason, you know. And that's why the frontispiece of this novel is the famous uh, p- picture by Goya mm-hmm. called "The Sleep of Reason Brings Forth Monsters," which shows a sleeping man at his desk, and behind him, curious bat-like creatures yeah. flying up into the sky. But what he says in his in his caption to that picture is not just that there's a simple opposition between reason and uh, uh, and and the monstrous. He says he says when reason and fantasy are allied, when they're together, then they are the parents of the arts and they bring forth miracles and so on. It's when they're separated from each other that the monsters the monsters start creeping out. Uh, this is a uh, podcast about imagination. Uh, I'd like you to use that imagination in uh, in a very um, 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 ad hoc way here for us. Imagine yeah. if you weren't a novel writer. Yeah. You would be? Wow. Um, I don't know. You know, I, the only thing I ever had as a plan B was that I quite wanted to act. Any desire to imagine uh, uh, Salman Rushdie as a playwright? You know, that's the bit that puzzles me, because given how much time I did spend involved with theater, you would think that it would be quite natural that I would move into writing for the theater, and I never did. And and I st- I do have a sort of itch to do it. I'd like to, I'd like to write a play before I'm done, you know. Uh, and I think the reason I didn't do it is because in the end, the temperament of the novelist is that you like doing things by yourself. You know, when when you when you've written a novel, it's done. You know, I mean, it has to be published and so on, but it's essentially done. Uh, no other creative act has to take place. When you've written a play script, you're only one step of the way to a thing. You know, and many other creative artists, you know, directors, designers, actors, musicians, etc., all have to do their thing before there's a work of art. And I think in the end, I just wanted to be that person who'd made it by, I made things by himself. Salman Rushdie, imagine if you hadn't had a fatwa issued. Yeah. Well, I'd have had a much better time in my 40s, that's for sure. You know, I mean, I was 41 at that point and about 10 years older when it finished. So, so it's kind of screwed up my 40s, which for many people is considered the prime of life. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't screw up your imagination, your creative output. I really, I think in a way I was saved by that, mm. you know. And again, I think what was really fortunate is that I was a writer of books. You know, if I had been a playwright, it would have been impossible in that time to have a play put on. Imagine if you couldn't write. Then I think I would have, well, if I couldn't write, I wouldn't have got in trouble in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so that would sort that out. Um, but uh, I I think the writing kept me kept me sane and kept me centered and 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 allowed me to resist you know it allowed me to and and I I think that a lot of novelists would admit that that we're a very bloody-minded lot you know and that if somebody's trying to shut you up you have an enormous desire to shout louder. In many ways, this book, which you're right, does try and provide a, a vision, if you like, of the world we're in now. You know, uh, Of course, it's informed by the very powerful information that I gained when 
I was at the sharp end of it, mm-hmm. you know. But now we're all at the sharp end of it, you know. I mean, the thing, the thing that was just my story, this attack on one writer for one book, you know, it's, I mean, now it's, it's all of us. You know? And so I thought that's again a way in which I can use something personal uh, to tell a story that's not just personal. Imagine the world your grandchildren will be born into. Well, you know, again, this is one of the things I try to do. It, it would be so easy right now, reading the newspapers, watching TV, to imagine that, and I'm not just talking about religion and all that, I'm talking about the environment I and mean, all kinds of things. You could imagine just the world's going to get worse and worse and go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> um, and uh, It's nice to hear you use cliches, by the way, for there you a, are. a best-selling author even I just revert to those sometimes. This is, this is your cliche of the day. You won't, you won't, you won't get, That's a different podcast altogether. <laughs> we'll have to get that one up and running. You won't get another one. Um, but, you know, that things would just go from bad to worse. It would, yeah. it, it would be very easy to write like that. And I thought, let me therefore not do that. And one of the things I learned from the study of history is that history takes all kinds of unexpected diversions and it doesn't go necessarily in the direction you think it's going to go. You know, in January 1989, if I said to you, the Soviet Union won't exist by Christmas, you wouldn't have believed me, you know, and yet that's what happened. So. And as we were saying earlier, 50 years ago, it seemed very improbable that religion would occupy this central role. So maybe 50 years from now, it again won't. Mm. You know, So we don't know that for sure. And so I tried to think about a future that might not just be doom and gloom, but that might be, you know, it wouldn't be perfect, but it might be something else than, than the doom and gloom we see around us now. And that something else is uh, two years, eight months, and 28 nights, a new novel by Salman Rushdie. Thank you so much, Mr. Rushdie. Thank you. Thanks. That was fun. We're all clear, Jay. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's great. Salman Rushdie. Spark is a podcast about imagination produced out of WLRN in Miami, Florida. To hear more, search WLRN Spark in your podcast app. This episode has been engineered by Jason Zabka. Spark is a creation of Maria Muriel, Alicia Zuckerman, and me. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.